0: This show is distributed by some quilts. Welcome to episode two hundred and twenty five of Texting.
1: Hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, Jason is talking to Gabriel Weinberg, founder of DuckDuckGo.
0: Hey, Gabe, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back. It's been a while. I just looked on our uh, our on our history of, of episodes, and we interviewed you for the first time on September fifteenth, two thousand ten, which was it's like ancient times in startup world. <laughs> And then again, we did a follow-up in, on April 11th, 2012, which I guess isn't that long ago. So it's even less than a year ago. But it sounds like a lot has happened. I mean, every time I look up, it's, uh, you know, you guys are, are growing and growing. So, um, But before we get into that, I was wondering if, if, if you wouldn't mind just like giving us a quick uh, recap of DuckDuckGo. Because I, I don't, I mean, some of our listeners may be well, don't really know the story and i can't expect them to go back to you know 200 episodes ago
1: yes sure okay so um i started DuckDuckGo, which is a general search engine um back at the end of 2007 so it's been a long time now i've been at it for about five years um and originally just focused on um some product things before I launched that I thought was interesting spam and instant answers. And then we launched at the end of 2008. Um, I kind of slowly took off from there. It was still self, uh, funded and a, a solo founder, um, and evolved the thesis of the company, which was kind of focus on things that Google can't copy very easily for generally not technical reasons, but for business, legal, cultural company, culture, that kind of stuff. And those, uh, focuses have been, um, The two original ones, spam and instant answers, and then we added privacy and just a cleaner, um, different user experience. Um, And then at the end of 2011, so uh, when we talked, uh, I think in April we talked about this a decent amount, we raised our first round of funding from Union Square Ventures um, out of New York, and we're in Pennsylvania. And then over this past year, we've turned more into a standard startup company, I guess. I, we have a, a bunch of employees now. We have an office, although we're, we're uh, about half virtual still. And um, that's about it. That's a quick recap,
0: I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably enough for everyone to kind of understand the context of all the stuff I'd like to cover today. So um, one of the most recent articles you've written um, was called Orders of Magnitude. And we've talked about that in the show a, um, a while back. And the idea being that every time you, you go from one order of magnitude to another, everything breaks and from technology to business, to marketing. And I wanted to, you know, maybe ask if you could go through that in some detail, because I think that was a really important lesson.
1: Yeah. So, um, the order of magnitude refers to a 10 X, uh, growth. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the argument I was making is like a 2x growth. I think people generally think about that. How do we double? I think that's good for short-term thinking, but a 10x growth is something where at least one, one thing in the company usually breaks, like you said. Um, and so thinking about how do you get the 10x growth and what would happen when you do um, is a useful exercise. Um, and that, That's kind of how I like to think. And so the, the core metric that which I talked about in the post that we use is this metric of direct searches per day—people coming to um, DuckDuckGo, Real Humans, and searching for things. Um, so that metric has grown um, about four and a half times the orders of magnitude from the beginning, and each one of those, um, you know, represented kind of a shift in in everything that we've done. And you know, now we're at another point where we're looking: okay, how are we going to grow again? And Everything that's worked in the past isn't necessarily going to work to do that, and so we're at that stage again where we're reevaluating.
0: Yeah. So it looked like, uh, at least in your article, you said you went from 1,000 searches a month after the launch settled down, and that you're now at 50 million searches a month, or at least when you wrote the article, which I think was about a month or so ago. Is that is that right? Yeah. That's that's absolutely right. Yeah. That seems pretty pretty big growth. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so I mean, it's over a long period of time, right? <laughs> but but yeah. um, that was four years.
0: Four years. Okay, one thousand to fifty million. Um, okay, so let's let's get specifics a little bit. Um, w- why don't we go walk us through a little bit, like the um, the growth in terms of your uh, in your marketing, getting the word out.
1: You mean like marketing spend?
0: Yeah, yeah. So when you first started DuckDuckGo, I mean, what was it like a show hacker news kind of thing? I mean, I, I can't remember for first interview. Yep,
1: that was, our, that was my initial kind of soft launch, uh, was uh, show hacker news. Right.
0: And how did, that, how did that evolve over time? I mean, obviously, you, there's only show, so many show hacker news as you can do. Yeah,
1: right. So, okay, so there were different, over different periods of that, and it kind of relates to the orders of magnitude, there were different major driving factors. Um, so at the very beginning, um, we got, uh, right. That was at the very beginning. It was like show news. Then the next level after that was, I, I, experimented with, um, with some, a little bit of paid advertising, you know, uh, doing, buying search engine on Google. Mm-hmm. Um, we did SEO, which, which helped for a while we ranked highly for a new search engine. Um, and we did and we had some content long tail seo in there um so that that drove a little bit of the initial bit and then right well, after that
0: exactly oh, we did content long you know long tail content so like oh well, if you maybe just give a quick explanation of what you did
1: yeah so we had um or, you know i had indexed wikipedia as part of um you know making instant answers and one of the things that i did was took their category pages and turn them into content pages on DuckDuckGo. So if you search for, like, Simpsons characters, you'll get a list of the Simpsons characters. And to make that a bit different than just the Wikipedia page, I took the abstracts and picture from all the different um, articles that were listed in that category and put them all on one page and alphabetize You click around it a bit. Um, and they, they made pretty nice pages. And so I... that
0: Manually for, for
1: all of these... These were not manual. No, I automated. I was automated. It was part of the, uh, you know, the, the script processing for Wikipedia. That's a
0: pretty uh, specific thing. I mean, a Wikipedia page is not necessarily like, a, you know, it's not annotated with like semantic markup or something, right? I mean, how, how do you parse all these pages and not have to write a specialized script for every page or category?
1: There's a lot of code we have to process Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's, not a, it's not a simple endeavor. Um, and for that reason, it's not very semantically marked up. Okay. Um, but but there are a lot of 80 uh, eighty twenty type of things you can do to get pretty far pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are a ton of edge cases that we've kind of solved over the years. Um,
0: how, how many pages did you do initially? All of Wikipedia. Um,
1: uh, all, wow. Yeah, they, they have a dump. And, um, you know, I, I just processed the whole dump. So whatever was in there. And then there were there were lots of things that we threw out because there's tons of articles in Wikipedia that just, for various reasons, you don't want to showcase. <laughs> um, but these these category pages ended up being in, initially pretty good for user acquisition because there, there are entities that are searched a lot, but they're, a, a general Wikipedia page it has tons of SEO already. It's hard to get ranked for that. But the category page has multiple entities on it, and so uh, people may be searching for the category topic or two topics at once, and they ended up ranking pretty highly, and so uh, we, we, I got initial traffic from that, a decent amount. Um, and then I'm, I'm trying to recreate history here. So the, the stage after that, I think we got a lot from initially from uh, StumbleUpon. Um, we did pretty well in there, um, and and that. Go
0: ahead. I'm a little clear about is <laughs> it. Like you create these content pages for Wikipedia categories. Now those are, cause on the DuckDuckGo site. I mean, how does it show the duck, duck, site? Those aren't just things that you search through. If someone searches for Simpsons characters, I mean, or how to, how does that become part of some, you know, Google search engine result or, or, or rank within the Google search engine results?
1: Right. So once I realized, and this doesn't exist anymore, cause this was back in, uh, 2009. Um, once I realized these were getting indexed and you know people liked them and were learning about our search engine because of it, um, I made a whole um, static structure for these pages, and there was a browse and a site map so Google could index it. Because um, Google doesn't want to index is against their terms index search results. Okay. Um, and so it can't be dynamic pages. So I, I made a whole static section for it.
0: Okay. Um,
1: and it and it worked pretty well.
0: Interesting. Okay, so you so you kind of game the system just a little bit <laughs> in order to to get the results. I mean, how? What did that take you from? Like, you had a thousand a month to to what after that? Was that an order of magnitude for you?
1: Yeah, probably uh, SEO alone um, probably took us. Yeah, I'm I'm not exactly sure because I didn't chart it that closely. Um, but I would I would guess that it brought in about that number of people, um, or probably more than that.
0: By the way, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I say you gained the system. I just meant you kind of worked the loophole or whatever you took. Oh, away. yeah. I'm
1: all about those things. I mean, I think that those are the – if you can find underutilized strategies in any um, customer acquisition channel, I think that's the way to go. I mean, it's almost by definition.
0: Right. Yeah, right. And, um, okay, so and, and so the next step – the the because I, I know I keep interrupting you, but I, I just want to make sure that we don't gloss over – some, you know, interesting stories and also like important lessons. So what, what, what was the next sort of stage for you? So my, my general thesis
1: for how to approach this has become, it wasn't at the time, but has become to kind of brainstorm all the different uh, channels. uh, And there's about 20 of them and try to figure out um, which are the most promising now test a few in parallel And then if you can find one that has actually returning value, then really focus hard on it and discover all these kind of hidden strategies like the, like the SEO example.
0: Um, When you you say there are 20 different strategies, um, vertical being words, another one might be long, like you said, um, content marketing. What are some of the other strategies that, that are generally applicable
1: Um, sales, BD, uh, non-search engine marketing, like, uh, Reddit, say, um, affiliate, uh, models, um, something I call engineering as marketing. So like, uh, building complementary uh, tools, free tools that then kind of relate to your product in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and there's more, you know, like email marketing, um, another good vertical, um, there I've been maintaining a list of these. Um right. but I, I think it's I, I think it's good to go through all of them because um you don't know where you're going to find the best um you know growth strategy, especially because you're generally biased because you don't really know about all these verticals very much. So the act of going and thinking about them can uncover things that you Systematically going to think about them, want to cover things, and you wouldn't get from just kind of doing what your gut says.
0: There was an interesting uh, book that came out. I think I have it in my Amazon wish list somewhere, but it was written by a guy who I think he's a doctor himself, or physician, and he was talking about the errors that are made in medicine, and that what was needed was something like a checklist that doctors need to go through an actual checklist when. I don't know whether it's doing a procedure or diagnosing a patient um, to avoid what you're just talking about, which is like overlooking possibilities or better options just because they're, they have cognitive biases of things that they're more comfortable with or more familiar with or, or whatever. Exactly.
1: Exactly. I remember reading that as well, that article and that's an apt analogy. I mean, just people, we have biases. The the most common one is availability bias, just what you're familiar with. Um, and that'll, that'll have you skip over things. But the worst part about it is the things that you're biased for are probably things that everyone generally else is, especially in your startup space. So the things that you're overlooking are potentially the, the gems, the most underutilized uh, strategies.
0: Right. Right. And um, what, were, what were some of the... When you've done that, I mean, have, when you've gone through this list, if you keep this list... Which, by the way, reminds me of another list. I was just reading an, art, an interview in Wired with uh, Larry Page, and he says he keeps a top 10 list of things that are broken with all these different types of product categories that he continually goes over. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of reminds a similar thing, I guess, right? You, may, may, you know, maintain a list. And when you're maintaining this list and going over it, are there, are there times, do you have any good examples where there were things that you just kept kind of avoiding in, in your normal thinking pattern. But then when you went through the list, it just, we're just like, all right, I got to try this. Cause I'm, I'm just skipping over number seven every time. And then, and then it ended up working out for you.
1: Right. So our, um, it, at the beginning of 2011, we did a, a billboard, um, which, which was kind of one of those things, you know, uh, people are kind of in, in online startup land, think doing offline ads is just generally kind of crazy. <laughs> Right. but but that worked out really well um and it and it ended up being because you go through this brainstorming strategy it's it ended up being not a big buy or expensive buy of 20 billboards i just did one billboard and then used it to to get national press on it um and that tactic ended up essentially doubling our user base at the time
0: well wow. So it's like, that was sort of like an example of these sort of unorthodox methods are like asymmetric warfare, you know? It's like, you do the unpredictable things, or at least the things that people aren't used to doing, and they can have surprising results, I guess.
1: Yeah, That's kind of related back to your orders of magnitude question that it it speaks to that, because when you're at certain levels of growth, certain things won't move the needle for you. So if, if we repeated that Billboard today and got the same amount of success. It wouldn't do much for us because going from the one million to two million, which is about what happened at that time, um, we'd go from fifty to fifty-one now, and it would be almost meaningless—not meaningless, but it wouldn't have right. the same percentage effect at all.
0: You got to do something different. I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of the of the um, thinking patterns with the venture capitalists have with sort of replacing the founding entrepreneurs with. Managers who run bigger companies, and I imagine one of the benefits of that, at least from the thinking of the VCs, is in addition to things like adult supervision and all that kind of stuff. But it's the these guys know how to think about it at the next scale. Like, so if you're used to thinking of a 20 person startup, a 50 person startup, you really can't think in terms of a 500 or a thousand person startup. You just think about things in the wrong way. I mean, do you think have you found yourself struggling with that as Deckdo grows, where you're like thinking of it of the company or what it does in certain st- at certain stages and you just it takes a while to adapt your mind to think about it as a bigger problem
1: yeah i mean exactly and, and that and that is the point of that post was to um and this other poster called moving the needle which i constantly overuse this phrase now <laughs> but <laughs> but i um i think to combat that you have to actively think about are you still doing things that aren't moving the needle um, and so t- to, for myself, that's what I continually do now is say, okay, these things that we're doing that worked for us, even six months ago, may not be working now, so we should reevaluate them.
0: Right. So you, you do something at first, it's, it has a massive effect, and then it just becomes, or it's like revolutionary <laughs> in a way, doubles your, your user base or revenue or, or, or whatever. And then it becomes simply incremental or simply linear, um, and then it's a matter of finding the next big thing, which I think you describe as a step function.
1: Is that- right. I mean, so oftentimes what happens is the scenario you described, and then the resulting growth curve of your company or whatever metric you're using, revenue or whatever, looks like a step function where it steps up and then it's kind of plateaus. Now, it doesn't have to be that case. I mean, true viral growth, for instance, is just one of those channels. Um, you know, looks great all the way up, (laughs) and it just continues to go up. But those are, um, and and those are what you obviously want if you could get it. But they're rare,
0: right? And that's something you talk a lot about in general, which is like, how do you find your next step up, your next step function, or whatever? Um. So okay. So after the, what was the next step for you after the? Um, you did the, you know the the I guess the category stuff. I mean you you. You had to go you find your next step how'd you find your next step
1: we had We had some success early on with with just getting um uh spread on some social media and mm-hmm. and blogs and stuff that I would write um so we got some from stumble upon another kind of random hack you call it hacker news plus <laughs> things right.
0: um so the hacker news strategy, which is trying to hit something that's gonna hit big on hacker on um Reddit or Hacker News or something like that and get you 50,000, you know, hits or something. And
1: exactly, make- and I was a very early advertiser on Reddit, um, one of the first, and so that that actually was good for us at the time. Um, and so so those things kind of went out through 2009, 2010, and then beginning in 2011 did that billboard um, uh-huh. and then uh, put out two microsites, which you could call in the content marketing, uh channel mm-hmm. um which had a similar kind of doubling effect um they both resonated a lot, kind of went viral, had a good call to action and 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 worked really well um, and then that brings us to kind of the beginning of so so in addition to all that, we had a background rate of organic growth okay. which is obviously great to have.
0: Which is uh, people, which is just basically people telling other people that DuckDuckGo is great, and that ha- that kind of happening on its own.
1: Yeah, and, and that is it is great because, like viral, even though it doesn't go exponential, it, it scales with your user base. So right. that's continued even as we've gotten bigger, we've we still have that rate. Um, and one of the things I keep coming back to on the team, we haven't really cracked it. Is you know, can we do anything to empower people to 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 give them tools to share it easier or more or, or something without, you know, impacting the product.
0: So you Um, could could almost think about like that organic growth is like the money you have in the bank and the interest rate you're getting on that money. And your step functions is like your, is like your income. Like you go out and you make a big sale or you land a big consulting contract, you make a big chunk of cash and then you put it in the bank and you just hope that, you know, you you have a lower, low viral growth and you might have a one or two or 3% return. You have a massive, You know viral growth, and it's you know obviously, like you invest in some kind of high frequency trading firm or something,
1: right? Yeah, no, I think that's a good analogy, right? And we, so I'd love to just increase our interest rate just a little bit, (laughs) because it makes a big difference when you have some big numbers. Um, but we're still still struggling with that, and then and so the final stage has been the last year. Our story has really been, um, besides the organic growth, which has been constant, is press driven. So we got a, a lot of mainstream press over the last year and that really kind of jumped up our, our user base um, to the level that it is now, which has been relatively stagnant the last, you know, six months or so. It's um,
0: really interesting actually, because I remember reading or or listening to an interview with one of the f- founder, the CEO of, um, was it Mebo? Remember that like web-based chat yep. program? And he was talking, Seth, I think is his name. I can't remember his last name it was Seth. And, uh, he was talking about how he was interviewed on it was like MSNBC or CNN or something or CNBC I think it was, and it made no difference to his user base. It was just a complete zero because I don't know for whatever reason it was the wrong demographic. Maybe because people weren't sitting there at their computer when the interview was going on. They're like, oh hey, I'm going to bring this up. You know, they're watching TV, which means they're you know in a different mode. Um, so that's curious. You're saying that like, so if you get interviewed even an article written up about DuckDuckGo and it hits um, New York Times or something, you see that people actually remember the article, remember DuckDuckGo, and then the next time they sit down at their computer, they're, uh, they're looking up, they're going to say, hey, let's give this try." Or or do you think it's because in the New York Times article, there's a link to DuckDuckGo and they click on it and then start experimenting?
1: So it's really varied. So one thing is that the press is no longer moving the needle for us in a way. Um, <laughs> Thanks. So that, that's part of the problem. It was like our last stage and now it's relatively stagnant. So to answer your question though, um, very early on, it really depended, I, I went on this whole press strategy exploring the vertical and seeing what would happen. And um, it really had to be a direct kind of call to action for kind of smaller publications and, and really nothing like a tech crunch or something wouldn't do much for us. But um, a life hacker article early on, this is one of the things that uh, I didn't mention, but I remember now, like, brought in 8,000 new users, something like that. Um, and uh, on the order of that. It was, And it was way better than any other press we'd gotten before. What do you um, th- I, I think it had to do with audience and call to action. Like, they were like, this is a great alternative. It solves these privacy problems. Try it, you know? Right. Um, and then this last year what happened was Google changed their privacy policy and we got um, a bunch of coverage and just way more mainstream publications. And and so we were, for instance, like in a week in March, we were on like NPR radio, like four or five times that week on major shows. Mm -hmm. Um, And even though there was, it wasn't online and it wasn't that it was enough to just drive significant usage. Um, But then we, we've we had other big hits that you wouldn't necessarily, you would think maybe would um, move something. Like we had an article in the New York times where you're we mentioned in passing and linked to as a way to kind of cover your tracks on the internet, which is perfect, except it really didn't really didn't move our numbers that much.
0: Would it have moved your numbers a year, year and a half earlier? Absolutely. And that's kind of my point. And then, and, and then most
1: recently you can see in our graph, which is, is public, we were, had a major profile, our biggest profile ever, really in the in the Washington Post, which was on their on their website and in the Sunday print edition at the cover of the business section. Um, really, as big a profile as you could ever hope to get, right? Um, and it did it did move us a little bit, you know, um, but not. It wasn't like a two factor growth, you know, that you might have expected, and we had no idea what to expect. What's a two um, factor growth? A fifty to hundred million, say, okay, for us at the moment. So a year ago, it would have been a, a, a two times growth, but but now because we've gotten bigger, it is um, it, it it just doesn't move the needle that much. Um, and from the outside, you can't really tell that unless you're looking at the numbers. I mean, you see a startup, any startup getting that kind of coverage, and you're like, wow, they must be that must have doubled their user base, you know?
0: Right. But, right.
1: But it's really a function of how big the user base is,
0: right? So, in a in a sense, it's it's growing a startup, especially a, a startup that you know has reached a certain level. It's about reimagining the company. It's a reinvention of the company every year and a half or something. I mean, or whatever it is, based on your growth rate,
1: right? At least the the user acquisition side of it. Um, I mean, some some companies. When they get to scale, right, they start doing a lot more paid marketing those kind of channels, um, which we haven't done as much for various reasons, although we've experimented with a little bit of it
0: and that would be the kind of stuff like paid search results on Google or what kind of paid marketing are you thinking of
1: there There's lots of different channels there, so uh, you know traditional uh, media you can buy tv ads you can go by billboards you can buy um search engine ads like you said you could buy um social ads like on facebook or or reddit um th- there's a whole array of, of things you could you know you could buy ads on radio you could make an infomercial um there's kind of a split in user acquisition channels between paid and earned as they say um mm-hmm. And even in the earn side, like PR, you can hire a expensive PR firm <laughs> and
0: <laughs> right. see
1: if they can give you more uh, coverage. Um, but but there are more options like that as a bigger company because you generally have more revenue or funding to, to spend on that.
0: Right, right. So where are you at now? I mean, you know, what's the what's the? I mean, what is there anything that's working for you now? Or are you kind of at a point where the stuff that was working a year ago or six months ago is kind of petering out, and you have to come up with a whole new? set of strategies
1: yeah we're at this come up with a whole new set of strategies um phase um mm-hmm. and so we're experimenting with different things and um i i still think that there's some way to empower people who care about alternative search engines and privacy in general to to spread us and other things more um right. and try to figure that out um but but we're yeah we're trying we're, we're in this brainstorming stage of all these different verticals again, seeing what we can come up with.
0: How, how big is that market? I mean, the market of people who, who spend time thinking about um, search privacy. Um, I mean, is that an order of magnitude larger than the Hacker News crowd? I mean, or two orders of magnitude? I mean, what do you... Because I, my, my, my first thought would be, well, maybe that would just be like, you know, a million people or two million people, in which case, you know, and a lot of those people you may already have. Um, but may, maybe I'm wrong about that. What, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, there's a couple answers to that. One is you look at things like AdBlock Plus or, or extensions like that. They have you know active user bases of like 15 million. Okay, uh, and so they're an order of magnitude greater than us, and two of Hacker News, right? right. Um, and th- those are existing user bases. And then I-, I think that from from our own evidence and kind of Things we see externally, um, the more people get educated on various privacy issues, and this is the key part that has never been happened before. And they have a easy thing to do to switch that doesn't involve sacrifice. Um, right. They're they're willing to do so. Uh, it's, just, it's it's almost kind of a no brainer, um, and that story is largely independent of us in a way because it's it's dependent on. The media and other things educating the public. Right. But over the past two years, that's happened a lot more and we're seeing more and more of that. So to the extent that that wave kind of exists, we'd like to be part of it. Um, but also the existing people who understand already about this stuff, like the people who have adblock Plus installed um, is, is much larger than us.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems like that it, that is a wave going on, and you hear that said a lot in the in, in sort of the startup world, which is that you, you're, you, if, if possible, you want to get on a trend of some kind, you know. And you see a lot of companies that were successful because they came out a product and they just happened to be the right product at the right time, based on various trends. And it seems like, you know, this is something I'd like maybe to get some of your thoughts on is the the trend of towards privacy or the, or the feeling that, that people are getting that they're being exploited in some way or another, or that the privacy is being invaded um, uh, and without them knowing about it. I mean, um, what do you think, what, what are, what are the aspects of that trend in your mind?
1: Well, so I, you know, committed for us not to store or collect or share personal information, you know, before this kind of even was a trend. Um, back in 2009. And, you know, I did it because I thought it was creepy, essentially. Um, um, and then for a sub-reason that I didn't want to be handing over uh, personal information to to law enforcement and other kind of entities like that. Um, but since then, I think it's been real. I mean, the tech industry has consolidated to a few big players who are generally getting as much data on people as they can to monetize them in various products that weren't their core product in, initially. So Google can make tons of money and they still make the vast majority of their money off of um, search ads, but they which you, where you don't need a lot of profile information. But um, to monetize YouTube and Gmail and those things, you know, they need robust profiles of people. Um, and you're seeing the same thing on the other big tech companies. And that data is vast, and I think it's starting to creep people up. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's legitimate.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems like there's two. There's there's sort of two concerns, and it seems like people are some people are worried about corporations invading their privacy, the the facebooks and of the world knowing everything about your friends and what you like, and and selling that, so that so that ultimately you're just going to be annoyed to death by other people marketing at you. And then there's the, and then there's people who are concerned about, you know, um, excessive reach of the government. You know, the NSA. You know, there's been a lot of whistleblowers who've come out and said, "Look, the NSA is sweeping up everything, everything anyone has doing." It's been of articles in right. Wired and and um, other mainstream, um, you know, journals where they're saying this is this is real, man. <laughs> and so it, it's like, you know, they both seem legitimate concerns for different reasons. Um, and,
1: and there's others too. I mean, we. Um, talk about a more kind of arcane, but I think just as pernicious reality of bubbling, you know, the fact that you're, because all this data is profiled you, you see more and more of what you agree with and less opposing <laughs> <Okay>. viewpoints.
0: <laughs> right. It's um, yeah, an article about that, I think, what you wrote about or you were quoted. I can't remember. You and I were pinging back and forth on that like, what, what, six months ago. What was that about? Um. I don't recall, (laughs) but we've
1: done a lot on this area. You know, we we have a microsite on it. We made a video about it, um, uh, related to the election. Um, and and I think it's a serious problem that resonates with people, although it's a little harder to go mainstream because you have to explain it. Um, and that's always a difficulty. And, And there's other areas too, like, um, the history of companies that have gotten hacked and their personal information has got out and then sold. Um, is pretty vast. And so if you could, I mean, my basic argument is is it doesn't really matter what reason you have for protecting your privacy. If you could switch to something where it is protected without sacrifice, it just seems like that's a no-brainer.
0: Right, yeah. So you have corporations invading your privacy. You have, you know, law enforcement overreach. And you have um, uh, hack being hacked or being uh, identity thieves and things like that. And then you also have like and, and those seem like those are all three major uh things to be to consider um and then the fourth I guess which you which you brought up was the being stuck in a bubble, which is that you you know you're you're sort of fooling yourself because everything you read is an echo chamber, and you don't you don't really have any of your beliefs or what you believe to be <laughs> that's now. the
1: extreme version <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah
0: yeah, um so so yeah, now, have you seen? Much, uh, I mean, what what has been the change over the past four or five years since you've been, you know, building DuckDuckGo in, in that trend? I mean, in terms of mainstream coverage and, and maybe the tone or, or depth of the articles.
1: It has been kind of a study increased beat um, with some spikes on, uh, with ver- on various news events. You know, so Google changed their privacy policy, all sorts of Facebook stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um have spiked it but even without those spikes there's been a general kind of uptick over time in it and you know i credit although i'm not i haven't traced it scientifically but i credit the wall street journal um with a lot of it um in 2010 they started this uh what they know area where they do you know i don't know what you call it the, first level journalism or something on um ferreting out and, and creating these stories. They actually one of the only publications that has a full time I think they have two now, full time programmers just to make help make them make these stories. Um
0: right, isn't that one of the guys, the guy does uh, Jeremy Ashcanis, the guy who does or is he at New York Times, the guy backbone underscore coffee script guy? I don't know. Um might times yeah. actually, I think about it. They do a lot of the visualization stuff, but yes, Day times has visualization.
1: These guys at, at wall street journal, I don't know their names because I interact with the um, reporters mainly. Um, but they, um, you know, they, they're just focused on, on privacy.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting thing. So, so what you're saying is if, if you could quantify that trend into a stock, you'd probably invest in it. In fact, you yes,
1: won. yes, exactly.
0: It'd be a good investment. Um, Which also speaks badly to the to the situation, right? There wouldn't be articles about it, and a growing concern about it, if the situation wasn't probably deteriorating in different ways. I mean, getting yeah. I mean,
1: people. I mean, there's people on both sides of that, right? So people think that a lot of it is, you know, FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. I'm on the other side. I think it's legitimate, and that is a it is a data point that's legitimate. Not there wouldn't be all these real reporters covering it if they didn't think it was legitimate.
0: Okay, so so let's say I'm a skeptic, and I'm like, ah, you know, I'm not doing anything wrong, so that like I don't care if the NSA or FBI or Homeland Security or whoever is like sucking down my web searches and transcribe my my Skype calls because it would just bore them to sleep, and I don't really care if Facebook knows that I bought a new pair of Adidas running shoes, like you know, if I I don't really care which ads are shown to my right side of my screen, and I've never even heard of anybody getting or at least personally know of anyone getting really um, hacked. So you know, convince me that I should care.
1: Why should I? Right, so the the latest Wall Street Journal reporting has been quite interesting in that they've shown, for instance, people getting higher prices on things all over the internet because of their profile. Um, They've shown, and this is just starting to come out, and I think it's not going to come out fully because no one wants to talk about this unless they're kind of found out about it, but... I think you'll increasingly see these profiles um, come up in insurance and other kind of rates like that, um, and so I think it'll affect you on your day to day life and expenses, um, not right. just on your passive advertising.
0: Right. Right. Um, can, you know, what about on the hacking uh, side, Den? You know, you know, have your identity stolen or things like that. I mean, actually I have a hard time being a skeptic because mine was stolen. I had yeah. A, I mean,
1: that, that has also been on the increase over time. I mean, that stuff is just terrible.
0: Yeah. I had a, um, I had, this was probably eight years ago or something like that, but I had a collection agency call me and they were trying to settle with me on a, it was like a $2,500 credit card bill. And I, you know, I didn't know what they were talking about, and obviously it turned out that they had a bad address for me, you know, because they said something about Chicago, which I had lit where I had lived previously, but they had the wrong address, and turned out it was just an it was an identity thief or whatever. Um, So I mean, it happened to me. I mean, luckily I can you know I was able to convince them or prove to them that it wasn't me, and they shut down the account. But I can imagine people being not being so lucky, or are being you know going up against a a collection agency that wasn't going to. Sort of bend so easily, which is going to push anyway, and then they're kind of screwed, and then because their credit gets ruined because you know some collection agency is convinced that they owe ten thousand dollars or something.
1: Right. I mean, so there, there, there is a you know a difference and overlap between security and privacy, but I, I kind of group them in protecting yourself online in a in a general sense. But that um, those hack things where people are. S- uh, stealing this personal information has increased and the, the 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 databases that they've been getting have been bigger and bigger. <laughs> um, right. And so, you know, like there was the one from um, Microsoft a few months ago, I think it was like Xbox Live or something. Was that? Mm-hmm. Um, if it, I'm yes, wrong on that, oh, I want yeah. a disclaimer. It may not have been that. <laughs> but whatever it was, it was like 70 million accounts and credit cards, you know? Um, yeah. it, the numbers are are quite big.
0: Yeah, and there was. I think there was, there's been a number of those because you see the they do the, a lot of the password analysis based on those database dumps. Like uh, Gizmodo wasn't that one of them that was done, or in yes, gadget yes, exactly. Yeah, and you know, yeah, right. I mean, yeah, that's pretty bad. And then um, I think there's been a number of articles about how you know, in Google is 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 fairly transparent about this part of it. Is they'll come out every six months and say there has been this much, this many requests. From federal agencies for user information, um, user right. search. And it's
1: consistently grown every time they've released.
0: Yeah, it's like doubles or something every six months or something fantastically big. Again, it'd be, if you could quantify it, it'd definitely be a stock you'd want to invest in. <laughs> right, exactly. And for privacy invasion ETF, it'd be a winner. <laughs> There's there's an innovation for you. That's there's a micro opportunity. Ty- <laughs> if you create the um the uh the duck duck go you know index for privacy invasion. <laughs> that sounds like that could get some press. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: you know? exactly.
0: But um wow. Well, um okay. Speaking of uh growth and and, and sort of hacking growth. Um I know you're uh you're working on a book um, with uh, with a uh, with a, a, co, a co-writer co-author um, uh, named uh, Jeremy what's it I'm not sure I can remember his last name Justin and Maris Justin Maris right and it's called the uh, the traction book yep right? which makes sense cuz you were starting to, you were doing a series of articles on traction a few years ago which I think or, not a series of articles but interviews which you yes, exactly you abandoned because you decided you need to spend more time building DuckDuckGo than Talking to people, I think. <laughs> yeah, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a smart, uh, smarter use of your time, but luckily you're going to come out with this, and I, I th- that'd be you know, great. I mean, you know, I don't want you to give the whole book away because obviously that would kind of partially defeat the purpose of writing the book. Um, but you know, look, maybe go through some of the big, the big ideas or that you're going right.
1: to come. Right. So the biggest one is what exactly what we've been talking about, and I, um, which is this whole notion of the. Twenty different channels and brainstorming, and um, you know finding the right one and focusing on that. And how do you do that? And I we name it in the book the bullseye framework to kind of zoom in on the right one to work on. And so, if you take away one thing from the book, it would be that process to to, to do that. And and most of the book is twenty chapters, one per channel to kind of familiarize you with that channel and, and get rid of your bias for or against it um, so that when you do the process of brainstorming, you you can do it legitimately knowing at least basic background information about that um, channel, how people use it, how they've been successful with it, et cetera. Um, okay. In addition to that, at the beginning, in addition to the framework, we, we talk about a, a lot of the, some of the same stuff I, I've been posting on, which is kind of um, tactics for, for approaching, um, the channels not individually but as a in general um mm-hmm. and so i wrote a post called traction mistakes um and so we expand about that a little bit but the, the main takeaway there is um you know people generally don't spend enough time uh pursuing their growth strategies pursuing right. traction um and we argue that you should spend 50 percent of your company efforts on that and really at the early stages if you're kind of a, the traditional two co-founder, one business, one tech guy, uh, both of you should be spending 50% on it. Um,
0: Why why both of you spend 50%? Why not just the business guy spend all his time or 90% of his time and the, the tech guy just build?
1: Two reasons. One, it never happens because the business guy needs to spend his time doing QA and design and all this other stuff and, administrative stuff and he ends up not spending 90 percent of his time Mm -hmm. pursuing traction um so that's one reason it's just the numbers don't add up the second reason which is potentially more important is that um the whole notion of um coming up with creative ideas um and bouncing ideas off each other that's kind of the selling point for the (laughs) Mm co-founder and if one person's really just doing it um you don't really get that dynamic. You don't get as many creative stuff flowing.
0: Right. Yeah, it makes sense. So you have two people trying trying lots of different things and I guess going back to the idea that you, you each have our cognitive biases, you have a couple people, they're going to two different people, are going to have slightly different biases against or for certain strategies. So
1: Exactly. There's another kind of there's there's other nuances to it, which is that a lot of the best strategies um are involved engineering into, um, into, into traction? And so, like we talked about um, uh, the one that I did with the uh, category pages, right? Um, right? If you just have a non tech guy spending all your time on that, they will generally not think of those type of things.
0: Um, things like a Firefox Chrome plugin or WordPress plugin or something like that that might help grow your product
1: right. Or even more kind of w- within that, uh, they, they might scope that out, but they won't figure out the technical tactic that really makes that a 10 times success instead of a two times success. Right. Um, and the only way to do that is to really have the tech guy involved at a core level on it.
0: Sorry to jump in here, but what's an example of a technical tactic?
1: So an example is, um, the, the, the one I mentioned, um, for creating those category pages. It needed script processing to do so, but there's other great examples. So um, in this whole vertical of engineering is marketing, creating uh, like uh, calculators that are kind of related to your product, but not core to your product that bring in new users in kind of the inbound marketing way. HubSpot is the classical example of this. They created marketing greater and website greater. Um, and those things still drive most of their growth. Um, we actually did one early on that I, I forgot, which was um, a Karma widget. I don't know if you remember
0: that. <laughs> Vaguely. What was the Karma widget? It,
1: it was, it, you could put it on your website. It was, um, it showed you how many points you had on Hacker News and followers on Twitter. And it was kind of an embed. But at the bottom of it, it said like sponsored by Go and a new search engine. And it helped us um, rank highly for a new search engine at the time. We got to rank number one for it because of that widget.
0: Right, right. Um, another thing that you talk about, I guess you mentioned the Traction Book in this article, and I think this is you know, this, it's related or and, and, and it's for part of the same conversation, is the bullseye framework? Yes. What is that?
1: So that is the, um, the methodology for how to approach uh, finding which channel to use at the right time. Um, and so we're just using the, a bullseye, kind of like a dartboard, as a metaphor um, to figure out, to zoom in, like a target, to zoom in on which one is working. And so what we suggest is go through each vertical and brainstorm very deeply on to what, uh, literally what kind of tests, what strategies you could run within that vertical. So if you're going to have a billboard, what would it say? Uh, where would you put it? Um, if you were going to advertise on Google, you know, what kind of keywords would you use? So try to scope how excited these ideas seem within each channel. Um, and ideally, that would also relate back, not to just your brainstorming, but to interviews you do with other founders in your space and other things you see competitors doing successfully or unsuccessfully. Um, so you end up with this kind of massive list of uh, relatively cheap tests or marketing ideas you can run in each vertical, um, which the exercise in and of itself is kind of valuable because it helps you hone your messaging or, or think about messaging. Um, but then once you do that, we say go through that list and try to, okay, sort them out into three categories, which ones seem, which ones are you really excited about? Seem like they really could move the needle. Which ones are you kind of on and which ones kind of seem like long shots. So then you have right. these three buckets um, and then we want you to go back and think more critically about them and kind of hit the ones, especially the ones in the that you were excited about, into uh, try to make th- pick the best three. Um, you might have had five or six in that um, area. Um, and then once you do that, then actually pursue those three in parallel and run tests where you can identify things like, okay, how much does it cost to acquire customers with these, this vertical right now? Um, how useful are those customers? Are they sticky? Whatnot? Um, and assuming you were successful, um, and one of those is a clear kind of winner, then really go down the path of focusing on that vertical, which in my opinion, um, means becoming a world-class expert at it, you know, uncover these little strategies that no one's figured out about. Um, and, uh, bring as much traction as you can out about it until you start to plateau. And then you start the process all over again based on what you learned. And if, 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 when you go down that cheap parallel testing, if if none of them end up being very successful, go back and start the brainstorming process over, not fully over, but use what you just learned and try to tweak your original ideas and reset which three to focus on next. And then
0: yeah, you, yeah. You, you, you say describing it, becoming a world-class expert in it, which, you know, Reminds me, uh, makes me think of my, one of my favorite definitions of an expert is someone who's tried every single possibility within a certain domain. So they know everything that fails. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, That's exactly what I mean. Exactly. <laughs> if you have not tried everything, you're not an expert. And in fact, it seems like what would happen. let's say there are, as you say, 20 or, or 30, uh, easily definable, um, strategy strategies that you can try and you try six or seven, and the sixth or seventh one that you try actually works pretty well, or really well. But you're not an expert, because you may very well have just hit on a local maximum, not a global maximum. Like, yeah, that, that worked compared to the other five or six, but that may be an order of magnitude less productive or less uh, um, effective than you know one of the other 10 or 20 strategies or 15 strategies you haven't tried. Um, is, is that... Is that something you know that you emphasize about ex- being a little bit exhaustive exactly so say
1: like one and it, it, it's it's Facebook ads or something you put up some Facebook ad tests and you're like wow these these work we had initial thesis that we should advertise to college students in Iowa or something you know, and mm-hmm. it worked really well initially um, and you're really excited about it now you go in and you really focus on it and you you try all sorts of other things in, in that channel that you would, you wouldn't have time to test if you're just kind of passing through testing the channels, you you make, you know, 40 landing pages and, you know, you try all sorts of other targeting and, and, and you, you go and see if you can uncover uh, that next jump you were talking about. And if you can't, maybe you then go back and move on, but maybe, but you actually really focus on it to become that expert.
0: Yeah. It, it reminds me a little bit of the, um, there was a, uh, a field of machine learning called reinforcement learning and they have a a heuristic in reinforcement learning called exploration versus exploitation which is what percentage of your resources do you allocate towards a strategy that works to some degree that's better than random versus strategies that are untried and the rule of thumb like the starting point of what you might just throw out there if you had no other information or or no other considerations is 80% of your effort the resources go into exploiting known strategies that work, and then 20% to always exploring new possibilities. I mean, does that kind of benchmark have any relationship to how you think about how much energy, you know, would say be focused in on exploiting and learning everything you can about maximizing return on those Facebook ads versus trying, you know, all these other things that you have on a checklist?
1: Right. So there, the, the two premises that underline. This advice is one, if you look at companies that are in their kind of major growth curves at the moment, their step function curves, it's generally the case that one thing, one, one channel is driving that growth. Right. Um, and so given that, that's the argument to say, okay, if something is actually driving your growth, you should focus almost 100% of your energy on that. Right. Um, when that stops working when it starts to plateau obviously and it, it it does obviously plateau for most companies that's the time where you're like okay i'm gonna start looking at other things now and when it really starts to plateau now i'm generally focused on other things And that first thing it's just in maintenance mode
0: right so what would your so then what would i mean it, it seems to me that you kind of want to diversify your portfolio a little bit like if you focused all your energy on one thing and then it just could, comes into a dead stop, then you're kind of starting from scratch. Then, if you kind of had some experiments going on in different areas, not only might you have some learning momentum, but you also have a little bit of psychological resilience. So, if something dies, you're not like, "Oh crap, we're screwed!" Like, freak out. Once.
1: <laughs> I think you can make that argument. I think you could logically make the other argument too, but maybe it comes down to your yeah, your personal resilience,
0: <laughs> right? Because you know Because you see that happen. I mean, you know, it is it, you know so much of our emotional state and psychology is wrapped up into the success of, you know, our prime focus, which for entrepreneurs is going to be their startup. And, you know, when something like that happens, I mean, it just can send you into a tailspin like, Oh my God, the dream is dead. (laughs) You know, I'm over. I mean, has that happened to you? I mean, have you, I mean, not that something just not only just plateaued, but just kind of died. Like just like all the, remember all those companies, um, just went under when Google changed its uh, search algorithms. Uh, like, was it yeah, Panda? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Panda X. <laughs> They've had so many Panda updates, but
0: yeah. Right. Like, Mahalo, uh, I think, was it Jason Calacanis' thing just kind of died and yep. everyone died and, and they were kind of like left without a company or whatever. I mean, so have you had experience with, with something like that where was it wasn't just plateau and it just, just fell off a cliff? Yeah, I
1: mean, pretty much all our strategies that had worked in the past went off a cliff like that (laughs) what's your reaction Uh, my reaction is i mean so i guess the distinction was is that our site is pretty sticky so when it's not like people are passing through and so the business doesn't just die you know we have our user base and they use it spread it on their own to some degree yeah Um, right that whole thing yeah we find the bank and it it just um Maybe that's the distinction, right? If you're running a business that's very transactional where you don't have an engaged user base, if you lose your channel, you really do go to zero. Right. Um, but, you know, we go through long periods where we have no inbound, um, you know, or, I mean, no, like, no big press hitter or, or extrinsic sense new users getting sent to us, right? Um, and it doesn't... Maybe it's just we're used to it, but it doesn't um, impact us that much.
0: Right, right. So I want to ask you uh, another thing about the book. So um, your uh, your your co-author, is, uh, I'm sorry, is Jeremy? Right? You said Jeremy. Justin. <laughs> <laughs> Step back, Justin. I should be able to remember that name. <laughs> so Justin, and Justin is only 22, right?
1: Yes, might be 23 or 24. I'm not exactly
0: sure. <laughs> the Website I looked earlier; he was 22, so that's that's pretty young. <laughs> so, you know, okay. As as a skeptic, I mean, what wh- what would he know that I that that could help me as a as a 22 year old? I mean, is it right. is that he's doing research? Is he kind of like acting as sort of like your grad student as, to to you being the professor? Like he does a lot of the hardcore research and 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 legwork, or does he? Has he had enough experience that you think he legitimately? knows a lot at this point.
1: he does have some good experience. Um, he worked with Appsumo for a while now, oh, okay. um, which has done all these different courses and other things about this subject. Um, and he's run his own startup out of school um, and then worked at another startup that got sold. Um, so it, it, some of that was through college. so he actually does have some experience to bear on it. but um, it's like, is you, it
0: Deanna Jones' fa- famous line? It's not the years, it's the mileage?
1: Yeah, right. But if you want to just uh, focus on my experience, you can do that. Um, he, part of the the problem, like you said, is I interviewed all these people and just didn't have time to continue um, and and transcribe and consolidate it in the way that I, I wanted. And so um, he came along and was, was super interested to do that. And so he went on and did, you know, with more interviews than I did uh, with, with all the people that I wanted to do. And so I helped facilitate those interviews going and he recorded them all. Um, and then we talk about it and, um, and proceed. And, and so I, it turns out great. I mean, it's been a good, um, partnership.
0: Yeah. That, well, that sounds great. Cause you have limited time. You need definitely needed somebody to
1: right without him. The the book would not be written at all.
0: All right. So, all right. Well, all right. I guess I have two different lines of questioning I want to follow here. So let me try and book more, bookmark this mentally. So, okay, the first line would be, okay. So let's let's compare the need for a co-author versus the need for a co-founder. So why is it that you were able to build DuckDuckGo without a co-founder and be as successful as you've been? But in another sense, you felt like you needed a, a co-author for a book, which of course is several orders of magnitude less involved in, say, building a startup of of DuckDuckGo's magnitude?
1: Because I'm running DuckDuckGo.
0: <laughs> right, I get this an answer.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, if I wasn't doing this, I mean, the book would have been out uh,
0: three years ago.
1: <laughs> and I would have done it by myself.
0: <laughs> okay. That was the obvious answer. Okay. I was hoping that would segue into this a little better, but let me give this a second shot then. Okay. So <laughs> I want to hear some of your thoughts on the whole solo founder, co-founder argument. I mean, it's, it's become, and I know we've talked about this in past interviews, but I think it's worth covering again. Cause it's, it's something that seems to have sort of solidified as best practice almost that, you know, you, you know, if you're doing some little th- tiny thing on the side, then yeah, you can do it by yourself. You're building an iPhone app that you're going to try and make a, thousand dollars a month on maybe or build some wordpress plugins or whatever sure you can you can do it by yourself but if you're going to do anything legitimate that anyone's going to care about then you're going to need at least one co-founder um obviously that's completely not the case with you and do you think that the theory of having or the best the, the advice of having a co-founder is just a context dependent thing that it really just depends on who you are and the resources you have available or, or what are your thoughts on that
1: I do, I do. I think that there are um, a, a couple things at play, um, and it's weird saying some of this because, um, you know, I, I was one, right? But I do think that it's clear that lots of other people besides me have been successful being a solo co-founder. I'm mean, a solo founder, um, but I do think it requires a certain personality, and it's not right for everyone. Um, and that explains why there was a lot, why you don't see it as much, right? Um, you need a little more in your personality to be able to do it. And so I think the general advice for having a co-founder is probably apt, but it's, it's not required for everyone. If you were within that personality type, the right. The other nuance is, um, there's a great post by Mark Zuster about equity and co-founders and, and his point was that. You know, you can be a solo founder for a little bit and still end up with most of the equity if you get something started and de-risk it a bit. So say you go out for six months and spend 10 grand of your own money and validate a bunch of assumptions and make an initial prototype and then show a little initial traction and then hire a co-founder, or maybe not hire, I don't know what the right word is, get a co-founder, but not a traditional 50-50 split co-founder, maybe like an eighty-20. Um, right, and I think that is kind of a middle ground, uh, very nice path for people.
0: Right, because it seems like there are people who want to get started, but they get stuck because they don't have a COVID. They feel like they're supposed to have one, and so they spend their time not making any progress, but just sort of wishing that they'll or hoping that they'll run into somebody who will be their magic, perfect match in their startup. And that seems to me to be always kind of hard, uh, uh, unlikely. I mean, it's like either there's someone who's obvious there, you know, in your life. Or- well, it's funny.
1: So I, I just came across someone. I hold off office hours now a lot.
0: Um, and
1: I just came across someone for the first time who was a non-tech guy who came in and was like, I have this idea, I'm looking for a tech co-founder, that that same story you're talking about. And I was like, wow, this guy is for real and he should have a tech co-founder. And um, I uh, reached out to some of my network and told him to go to some events. And um, I think I helped a little bit, but within like a week, he actually found someone. Um, Which I think the general problem there is what I'm getting at is most of the people in that space are kind of lemons are not ready to be a real startup person, but there are people in there who are. And so you have to figure out how to separate them. And one way to separate it yourself is to go build it yourself, hire someone or learn it yourself.
0: So what about your, the, the idea of outsourcing development for the first phase of the company? So like building the prototype or the rough version one or whatever, because I've, I've seen companies do that. I mean, I've seen it on a small scale. I, I remember doing this um, a while back. We've talked about in the show. I did, um, with a buddy of mine, we did like an open office hours at this co-working space, and all these companies came in to ask us questions. And a few of them that had gotten pretty far had actually outsourced the development. They hired a development firm or hired a developer or whatever. And getting to the point, like you're talking about, of like, you know, where you sort of de-risked the initial... Um, Concept and you've kind of gotten a little bit of traction, um, and I've also seen on the bigger scale where companies have actually gotten funding and then hired entire development shops to to work for them. I mean, what do you what do you think about that?
1: I mean, I kind of think of whatever works. I mean, if your back is against the wall and you get something done, that's fine. Um, I mean, generally, I think from like an investor point of view, I wouldn't want to fund a company that is a tech company that doesn't have a tech co-founder, but right. If it was, if you got started and you hired a firm and now the tech co-founder is coming in and he's going to throw it out or he's going to make it work or whatever, then I'm fine with that. So I think it's a good strategy. And there, there are a bunch of development shops, and there's one in Philly that, that specialize in that particular area, you know, helping you build your prototype in a way that doesn't suck, right? <laughs> that you won't, won't necessarily have to completely throw out later.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems like that's not a bad way for non-technical. Um entrepreneur to sort of get some traction or get sort of prove themselves that they're not just, you know, just, you know, BS and, and, you know, having you know, you know, they actually, they actually can make something. They can they actually can execute.
1: Exactly. You know? There's other ways too. I mean, you could, um, like people like to make PowerPoints. I wouldn't suggest that, but you can actually make real high quality design mockups and hire a designer, you know, in a similar way and not actually build the whole thing, but at least then you, you're showing, the person you're talking to that you have an eye for design, right? <laughs> and I've, I've thought, thought through some of the, the key things, such as an idea at that point.
0: Yeah, kind of seeing is believing thing. You know, people see something, even if it's not fully functioning, they get it, as opposed to you just waving your hands in the air. Exactly. Um, so I, um, a couple more things I wanted to, to, to go over with you. It, one is, you know, you still write blog posts, um, which I always find very insightful, but I I imagine they don't really help the growth of DuckDuckGo. I mean, why do you, uh, why do you spend time writing them at this, at this stage?
1: You're right, right. They have zero impact on the growth. Um, I have a, a post actually called why blog, um, which is going to be better than what I'm going to say here. (laughs) So if you're super interested, you should go check that out. But I mean, the basic answer is, um, I do it for myself. Mm -hmm. Um, to think through things that i want to kind of solidify the thinking of um and and just the process of writing the pose and you know the threat of an audience (laughs) um and, and the comments that come back are great too um that whole process i just find does more than just me thinking about it in my head or even a conversation with someone, you know, actually writing down the argument in a way that you're, you're trying to tell people just, I've never found anything else like it.
0: Right. So, I mean, so for, 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 for people who are trying to say build up an audience or create some help, create some traction for their, their startup or product or whatever, then, you know, so you they have two good reasons to blog. I mean, it's probably, other reasons that I'm sure that people would come up with just self satisfaction or whatever, but you know um, so, but for you, even just this one is, is more than enough to just to, to, it makes the time worth it regardless of its lack of uh, direct impact. Yeah. I
1: mean, blog is another channel that we didn't talk about. It's one of the 20. Um, I, I, I personally think it's a, it's almost wide open still. It's a very underutilized um, channel and strategy. And there's been, good examples of companies that, um, like OKCupid, that had major growth strategies because of their blog and put in um, significant effort into it. Um, and actually, that's another good example of, uh, of engineering technical time on a non-technical thing. It was the, like the OKCupid blog. A lot of their posts took like intense data analysis to, to, to make. Um, but then they were awesome as a result. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, do you think it's underutilized? Because you, you hear people, I mean, that's obviously very common advice, which is start a blog. You know, day one, start a blog. Just like, you know, create a good a landing page, get an email list, start a blog, start blogging. Do you, do you think it's wide open because people know the advice, they just don't do it, or they just don't do it well enough?
1: It's wide open because it takes six months minimum to build an audience of consistent posting. In the first four months, you're just talking into a complete vacuum and it seems like you're going nowhere. <laughs> and and that amount of day in day out, you know, negativity or or not feeling it get anywhere is too much for most people.
0: Although it seems like with um, Hacker News and Reddit, that even if you don't have a, a regular audience, if you write something that's really good, you can get the, you can spike that growth. That, that you can get something, and it hits a front page, and you get five or ten or twenty thousand views. Absolutely,
1: I mean, I, I think that's great. Although to some. I mean, so i I like to think positively, <laughs> and so I agree with that just some once they get that spike and they put out the next post and then it gets like a hundred views <laughs> I, that that contrast is too much for people.
0: they just have to understand that it's it's not gonna everyone is't gonna be a super hit that you're just gonna have to knock some out, and uh some are gonna hit it, and some are not yeah, um <clears throat> so. Oh, and another thing I want to uh, to ask you about. I, I sent you an um, I sent you a link before the show about a uh, something. It's a new product come up by the I think Washington Post called Truth Teller, and the idea of Truth Teller is that they're going to have a real time fact checking program, an automated fact checking program that I guess is going to transcribe. Or interpret the the audio from say an interview or a debate or whatever, and then you have real time fact checking on that. So like if someone says, "Well, my new policy or is going to create or this new change is going to create five hundred thousand jobs or this is going to add this to the GDP or whatever," it'll say that's not true or that's true or whatever. Um, And the reason I want to ask you about it is because I I was I was reading another article about DuckDuckGo where they And it was talking about how you have, you know, all of these structured databases or data feeds that go into DuckDuckGo. It's not just... DuckDuckGo just doesn't crawl the web. It actually sort of pulls in all these data sources, diverse data sources, and combines them and synthesizes them, whatever. And with something like... You know, I want to hear a little bit about that, but I'd also like to hear in terms of this sort of truth-teller thing, this fact-checking thing, which seems like a really... Cool idea of like real time search, but out of a structured data source. Would would something like that fit into DuckDuckGo?
1: Yeah. So I mean, so I realized maybe you know a year and a half ago that this whole idea of instant answers, things that are better than links, you know, when you search for something uh, that we can put above the links is kind of the future, and the only way for us to compete with that is to open source the whole thing and try to build a community around it where people, you know, want to improve, make these instant answers for, could be for a variety of reasons. And so, and to really push the long tail of that. And, you know, we've done that a little bit now, people have made like Lego part plugins and bioinformatics and um, esoteric math things. And so I would follow that into this, which is, you know, it's not something we would do as the core team, but we would hope that something like that someone would be like, "Oh, that's awesome! I want that in my search engine," um, or the Washington Post themselves when we got bigger, and make a plugin for it that surfaces on the right search queries.
0: Right. And it seems like a. I mean, just because a search engine, in some ways, like you, like you said, is evolving towards an answer engine. <laughs> you know? Right. Exactly. You know, like we jokingly say, ask the Goog, right? Like the Goog is like going to Oz or something, you know, ask the great Oz, just tell me the answer. And which is of course way more valuable, or at least give me the top answers from the top five oracles in the world or whatever, as opposed to give me, you know, 50,000 links to 50,000 websites that cover it. Uh,
1: Yeah. And if you think about it, you know, all these startups, thousands of startups in the past few years all have APIs and generally have interesting data. Um and so that data is not really in web pages, it's in their databases. And to the extent that they can be made into nice instant answer plugins, I think if you had all of that available when you type in a search, that would be an amazing search engine. And that's you know, that's where we're trying to get to.
0: Yeah, it it, it kind of harkens to the, the 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 promise of the semantic web, I guess. I mean, is that sort of the APIs, rather than saying here's an XML, some kind of crazy web of XML documents that explain all the data, the data is actually sitting in relational or NoSQL databases or whatever. But it's it's but it's the interface is a, is an API, a RESTful JSON API. Is that kind of is that our is that the reality of the promise of the semantic web?
1: I mean, right. So I don't know if that is division the, the semantic web people had, <laughs> but. <laughs> That's the current reality of where the interesting data is,
0: for sure. Right. Well, okay, so what what would be some strategies for making that happen? Like, you know, you. I mean, how, how do you get these data? I mean, you have these APIs. A lot of them have APIs in getting that into Dr. go Is that just a matter of you? Having a big development team and these different developers just write adapters or whatever it takes to get the the API for particular, you know, I don't know flights, you know, flight search engine or something, you know, into into DuckDuckGo.
1: Right. So we focused on the on the DuckDuckGo side on the platform for enabling developers to do it really easily, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is ongoing. That turns out to be a relatively complicated problem, <laughs> but we're <laughs> we're getting better at. Right, we're getting better at that. Um, I, I think the, the DuckDuckGo development team doesn't scale to the amount of data sources that we would want to do. And so I think it has to be the case that we um, engender some kind of development community around these this plugin space. Um, and th- there's a number of ways we're trying to do that, but I mean, we haven't been super successful yet. So, I mean, ideas are welcome.
0: <laughs> okay, well, look- let me ask you then. Okay. So, as a developer, you're talking to me and you say, okay, we have, you know, we have this way of getting this particular data source into DuckDuckGo. I mean, what, 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 ins- how would you pitch it to me? I mean, what, how would I be incentivized to spending time doing that? I mean, okay. So, even if I like you and I like DuckDuckGo, and I mean, why would I spend time doing something like that? What's, what's, what's in it for me? To, right. So, there's to
1: been three main it. use cases or, you know, or convincing points to date on the plugins we've seen. And we have about um, maybe a hundred so open source plugins so far. Um, Mm -hmm. Either it's your own API and you want to showcase it. Um, Mm -hmm. That's one. Uh, A side version of that is you want traffic, you know, it's a way to get some traffic, especially initial traffic to your site. We don't have the most traffic yet. Like our 50 million searches sounds like a lot, but when you cut it down to small data sets, it ends up being not that much. But over time, we hope that's a bigger component. You know, if, if you could make a, a plugin for Google now, you'd probably do it. <laughs> um, so, so that's one. The second has been, you know, you're a duct user and you really just want to improve the search results for a certain type of search. You do a lot. Um, and you want the results to look like this cause you think it would be better. Um, you could do that. Um, and a third has been, you know, just like contributing to any open source kind of project, um, you get um, satisfaction, recognition, attribution, all our plugins, you know, say who it's from. Um, so, so those have been the three main drivers so far.
0: All right. so doing something that has an API that might be widely used, like sort of a GitHub code search or something, and build that into a a go, you might put yourself right at the cross-section where you're getting a lot of, of um, attribution.
1: That's true, yeah, and that is one
0: that exists. Right, okay. I guess that's sort of obvious. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's a good plugin, too. I mean, it's great.
0: Yeah, I would imagine. All right, so what are some other uh, really cool or are widely used plugins?
1: Um, one that was really cool in the sense that the developer, um, Arlo, spent a lot of time on innovating on the UI, and to the extent that we're going to reuse it for all sorts of other plugins, <laughs> is um, he made a plugin for Khan Academy, uh, so you can type in like con math and it'll, it'll showcase the videos and you put it in a carousel where it's easy to kind of scroll through. And now we're going to use that for all sorts of things. And then it plays the video in line. Um, that one was pretty cool. Um, one that I've surfaced a lot that i like is there's this recipes plugin, um, that, um, before we had the platform that, um, I made with, uh, Jeff Miller at Punchfork, who's just been acquired Um, but I really liked it because one of our early visual, um, very visual, uh, instant answers, you know, where we show like pictures of food and it also, I liked it because it had a very generic trigger. You could just, you could just type in various ingredients like tofu, ginger, and it'll pop up pictures of recipes.
0: Yeah. It seems that this idea of having, um, sort of custom plugins for, uh, structured data sources like I said, is the future. Like I, I can imagine where is once you had a, enough coverage, um, you know, maybe this is five or ten years out that the actual search results is just like you know, as an auxiliary, like the footnotes, or you know, this is something that's so niche that there really is nothing. So the best we have is a bunch of links for you. That the the, the 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 real the real um, holy grail is just is having what you're talking about. Like anything I search for, it's like yeah, we're tied into the the five or ten primary data sources, and we we because we understand it, and because we that we know what the data means and how it relates, we can combine it and display it in in exactly the right way.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: That sounds awesome. So can we have that like what next? <laughs> I, I wish we could have that sooner. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess then ultimately then. It's voice activated, and it's on our mobile devices, or in our Google Glass, or in our Google uh, contact lens.
1: Yes, exactly. That's, I mean, it's kind of where it's headed, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you you should just. I, oh, okay, here's the unsolicited device. You just need to, to to leapfrog Google with our Google Glass thing and go straight to the DuckDuckGo le- uh, contact lens. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can have DuckDuckGo X. <laughs> That's your little experimental division. It's funny. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So, um, you know, as uh, to tie up the show, I, I, I know you got to get back to building a uh, world-class search engine. So I don't want to take any more of your time up. But you know, what is there anything new on the horizon? New big vision or new cool features that we can look forward to from DuckDuckGo?
1: Yeah, I mean, so we've been um, hard at work at new uh, mobile apps and uh-huh. browser extensions. The browser extensions are all out. Um, and they do kind of interesting things for people that aren't even DuckDuckGo users yet. They'll add our instant answers or some of them. We're hoping to get all of them at some point into Google. When you search Google to try to get people f- more familiar with DuckDuckGo, who may not be yet. Right. Um, and then the, the mobile apps uh, are just kind of completely redesigned. They have autocomplete um, in them, which are not on our main website. They have a... Um, a stories component on the homepage of them. Um, it has been soft launched on um, Android and Windows 8. Uh, we're still working on iterating on that before we do like a big launch ar- around it in iOS. Um, but you can go check it out if you want and give us feedback.
0: Cool. Cool. Well, and I, I, you know, I, I want to make sure I cover this. How how big big are you guys now in terms of the actual company employees and, and all that stuff?
1: So we're. um, I think we're like eight employee official employees or maybe between six and eight. But then we have about like, um, 10 to 15 part-time people who, who make significant contributions on a monthly basis. Um,
0: so your, your developers to users has got to be one of the highest ratios out there. I would imagine.
1: Um, I don't know about that, but it's relatively high. Yeah. I mean, um, the craziest ones were like Instagram <laughs> I had like 13 employees when they sold to Facebook. Um, but no, it's great, we don't have too many full time people, although we're always looking for um new people to work with us. Uh, we've been everyone who's come in has come through our open source um side or some way from our community,
0: right? We well, you, you talked a little bit about that in the last show um we did together, and you said that. Yeah, you know, for people who are interested in in, in working at DuckDuckGo, that you, they should go and and participate a little bit in that open source community.
1: That's right. I mean, now we have a very easy path to do that too with the plugin platform.
0: Right. So just so if you want to work with with Gabe, go write a total badass plugin that does something super cool, and you'll be getting an, an email or phone call. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> really cool. Well, Gabe. I really appreciate you spending, uh, spending as much time as you have um, with, uh, with us today. It's really great talking to you again, and it's so cool to see DuckDuckGo uh, continue to, to grow at the pace it's, it, it's been growing. I mean, you know, when we first started two years ago, I mean, what size were you at back in, uh, was it September 2010?
1: Oh, um, very small. Under a million searches a month. What, what was that? How much? Under, under a million searches a month
0: probably significantly yeah. better. I mean, something yeah. like that yeah
1: very uh, several orders of magnitude smaller <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's, it's so cool to see wow it's just well congratulations and and uh, with it and, and good luck with uh, getting your next order of magnitude
1: thank you it's always fun
0: all right that's a wrap we're out